Please take your Bible and turn with us to Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter. To our musicians, as always, thank you very much. Dr. Al, you and I love them, don't we? We appreciate the ministry of music. Thank God for those who use their abilities and their gifts to lead us in worship. Pray with me, please. Father, we have before us, open before us, the Word of God. We need that ministry of God the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We are grateful that we do not have to depend on men and women, but we depend on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And may we have His ministry in our hearts, in our minds, this morning as we are gathered here to worship You. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the early life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were numerous veiled hints. At least I refer to some of the earlier ones as veiled hints of His suffering and death. For example, in the opening chapters of John's Gospel, we read, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, there was no great specificity given with that. It's just destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's one reason that I refer to it as a veiled hint of His suffering and death. Also in John, we see Jesus speaking these words to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that, if you'll pardon the expression, that just out there by itself, would you have known what that meant? Would you have known the detail of the suffering of the Lord Jesus by that? Again, I believe it was a rather veiled hint. There's more. In Matthew chapter 9, we read, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Also in Matthew 12 chapter this time, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now so far as the apostles and the disciples were concerned, I believe these were no more than veiled threats Indications, if you please, of the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Matthew 16, 21, the veil is removed. And we come to some very plain language. Jesus very clearly says to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised again the third day. There are two things I would like to point out from this verse of Scripture. And I refer to 1621 of Matthew as the revelation of his passion. And I think you will see why with me in just a moment. I've read most of it, but let me read it again. 1621, Matthew. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. 
and be raised up on the third day. The veil's lifted. This is very plain. It's unmistakable. Jesus Christ began to show. Look at that word show with me for just a moment, if you would, please. The word means to exhibit or to prove. It's more than just a statement. He begins to exhibit and to prove uh, exactly what's going to go on in Jerusalem. He speaks plainly of his coming death. But from the later records, we see that the disciples and the apostles don't seem to have really understood all that he was saying. Now, it's very easy for us, having a printed Bible, having several of them in our home, coming to Bible classes, coming to Sunday school classes, coming to worship services, and a whole raft of other things, it's very easy for us to say, you know, they should have understood more. They should have comprehended more than they did. But keep in mind, for us, it's very plain. It's all spelled out from beginning to end in the Scriptures. And we might remember that uh, for the disciples, for the apostles, it would have been very easy for them to shun any kind of suggestion of a time when Jesus would no longer be present with them. Now you put yourself in their sandals for a few moments. You walk with them uh, and, and, and think about what it was like to have the Lord Jesus with you 24-7. It would be indeed natural for them to do away with any thoughts of His not being with them. And then too, I can't help but uh, wonder whether or not when we get to heaven, Peter or one of the other apostles might not question our lack of understanding of some of the things on the pages of sacred scripture. I can almost hear the apostle Peter say, I spoke to you very clearly. I wrote to you very plainly about how a husband and wife ought to get along with each other. Some of you didn't comprehend that. I think I can hear Peter saying that. Or, later on in Peter's writing, I think I can hear Peter say, I wrote to you about how to get along and how to deal with false teachers. And you didn't quite grasp that truth because some of you sit want to check from time to time. Let's not be unduly harsh with the understanding or when the understanding of the disciples wasn't all that we think that it ought to be. Even though Jesus came to a place where he spoke very plainly to them about what would come. He began to show, to demonstrate, to explain to them. But then there's another word that we need to look at in this verse of Scripture. The word must that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the last, on the third day, excuse me. Let me ask you a question. 
How did Jesus know the details of his suffering? I mean, he spoke about it here. Suffer many things. To be killed, to be raised up on the third. How did Jesus know the details of his suffering? Well, here for just a moment or two, if you'll stay with me, I want to make a distinction between the Lord Jesus Christ and his deity. He was fully God. He knew everything from the beginning to the end. That's his deity. What about in his humanity? How did he know that he must do these things in his humanity? Well, in his childhood, we read in the Gospels that he knew that he was to be about his father's business. The Bible says that very clearly. He knew that he was to be about his father's business. But still, that's vague, is it not? There are no, there are no details given there. He knew that he was to be about his father's business. That still leaves us a question about many, many other details. How did Jesus know in his humanity? All right. How did Jesus know in his humanity that he was to go to Jerusalem? He said, I must do this. How did he know that he was to be crucified in his humanity? To be buried, to be raised again on the third day? To me, that's a very reasonable question. And I think I've got an answer for you. How did Jesus know he must do these things in his humanity? All right. If you'll keep your place in Matthew and turn with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Just one verse of Scripture. Luke, chapter 18, verse 31. 1831, Luke's Gospel. There we read. And he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. I gather from Luke 1831 that Jesus knew the things that would transpire with respect to his sufferings by a study of the Word of God. Would you look at 1831 of Luke one more time, please? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things, notice, which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man. The prophets had much to say. You are aware of that. You studied through the Old Testament. The prophets had much to say about the suffering of the Messiah. In his humanity, Jesus pondered over those things, I believe. He studied those things. He read them. And as the Holy Spirit instructed him in his human nature, he learned the details of his own suffering and death. Dear people, Jesus saw in the Scriptures nothing less than the revelation of his heavenly Father. The infallible revelation of his Father. And Jesus ordered his life by the word of God. Now, let's not miss the application. If the Lord Jesus, the eternal son of God, 
the one person who possessed a divine and a human nature, if in his humanity he made the word of God preeminent, then what about me and you? What should we? What should we who are sinners do? What should we whose hearts and minds and wills have been affected by sin? What should we do when it comes to the word of God? I think there's a tremendous lesson here for us. May I just press this for a moment? Um, you take your Bible home. You will today. And I don't know where you'll put it. When will you open it and read it again? Do you ever just sit and read the Scriptures and then think about what you've read? I'm not talking about studying right now. I'm talking about opening your Bible, reading the Bible, and just pondering over what you've read. And then after you've done that, just study it. I'm not sure where the idea came from. I've known about it all of my life, and I'm sure you have too. That somehow or other, Christian people, by and large, not everybody, okay? This is not a blanket indictment. And I know many of you study your Bibles. But not everybody. What do you do with the book when you get it home? Do you ever study it? Somehow I seem to have the impression and have had the impression most of my adult life that Christian people just almost get to a place where they put the Bible under their pillow, sleep on it, and think they're getting the Word of God. Osmosis. It's just coming in. May I say to you, it doesn't work that way. New Testament says, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you study the word of God? How did Jesus know about the things in his life in his humanity? He studied the word of God. He had no sin nature. We do. We need to study the word of God. Are we? I don't think there's anybody within the sound of my voice that would just look at me and say, I'm too busy to study the Bible, Pastor. I'm just too busy to do that. You wouldn't say that to me. You just don't study it. Am I wrong? Jesus, I believe, from Luke 18 and other passages, and then generally from theological truth, I believe that Jesus not only knew all the Word of God from the beginning to the end, all the events, but I believe He studied the Word of God. It says He learned from the prophets. So back in Matthew, he says, I must go. I must suffer, be killed, be raised on the third day. There's an old story that I have enjoyed thinking about. About Talleyrand, the bishop turned skeptic during the French Revolution. There were some folks in that day who didn't like Christianity, who thought Christianity ought to be replaced with some other kind of religion. But they weren't having much success at doing that and establishing a new religion. And one day they complained about their plight to Talleyrand. And he looked at him and says, starting a new religion to replace Christianity is not difficult. And so naturally that piqued their curiosity and they said, what do you mean it's not difficult? We've tried and tried and tried and we're not getting anywhere. Talleyrand responded by saying that uh, 
All you need to do in order to establish a new religion is to prophesy that you're going to be killed. Prophesy that you will rise again on the third day and then bring it to pass. And when you do that, you won't have any difficulty whatsoever starting a new religion that will replace Christianity. Well, obviously, he knew that that couldn't be. But you know, that little bit of an illustration to me and, and what we see here in the text even more speaks of the uniqueness of Christianity. It's all about Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That's key. That's important. That is the important thing in the life of the child of God. He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised again on the third day. And surely that little word must, I direct your attention back to that. That little word must. He must do these things. For the Lord of glory to say He must do these things, there must be something enormously important and noteworthy about this. He must do what? He must suffer. He must die. He must be raised. There must be something of tremendous importance in that. Why is it important? Well, if we'll think about it, we'll soon come to realize that forgiveness from God cannot come to us from heaven by a voluntary declaration. For God never to have come to this earth, He could not just sit in heaven and say, you're forgiven. If men have been created, and if men have sinned against their Creator, and if it is true that God is holy, then we must conclude that God cannot simply sit in heaven and by words say, you're forgiven. If He did that, listen to me now, okay? Some, somebody sitting here is thinking about if we confess our sins, He's faithful just because... But you wait a minute, okay? You wait a minute. If God sat in heaven and none of these things ever took place and said, you're forgiven, the question would immediately be raised, what about God's holiness? What about God's holiness? What about God's righteousness? God simply cannot forgive sin that way. His holiness, listen to me, His holiness, His righteousness Demand satisfaction. It is the law of His being that the wages of sin is death. And for God simply to sit back in heaven and speak and forgive sin, that would be for Him to contradict His own attributes. If God's holy and He is, nor can he simply forgive men based on their confession. Listen to me. The Bible says there must be a righteous basis for forgiveness. There must be a reason why God is satisfied in His holiness and in His righteousness. And thereby, He is able to confer forgiveness and salvation upon men. All this is involved in the word must. He must do this. He must go to Jerusalem. He must 
be crucified. He must be raised again on the third day. Why? Again, because God's law must be satisfied in the execution of a penalty upon a substitute. And by virtue of that, we have life. Do we know the magnitude of what's in view and what's involved in our salvation? The Son of God had to die when God saved us. Listen to me. When God saved us, He didn't relax His righteous requirements in the slightest. He met His own requirements fully. The wages of sin is death. He met His own requirements fully in the death of His Son. So the salvation that we possess is not because God overlooked the requirements. It's not because God sat back in heaven and winked and said and, and patted people on the head and said, that's okay, come on in. That's not why we have salvation. We do not have salvation because He minimized His requirements. We do not have salvation because He bypassed any of His requirements. Salvation was our, our salvation was on a righteous basis. We sing, Jesus paid it all. And He did. He did. He paid it all. And now based on that sacrifice, God's righteousness has been conferred upon us. May I say to you, preaching that does not include the elements that I have just mentioned is not gospel preaching. And I say that based upon the Word of God. What I have just declared to you was the message of salvation that Paul preached. That's how Paul said it was. And yet, if you listen to very many preachers today, you'll hear about hunger. You'll hear about reformation. You will hear about ecology. You will hear about war. And in recent days here in the state of North Carolina, you hear an awful lot about gender. But first things must be first. We must talk about, preachers must talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all that flows from that great transaction. Now, I don't say that we should ignore the world that we live in. Jesus did. Jesus mentioned taxes. Jesus talked about the poor. Jesus knew enough about the political situation today to call Herod that fox. But those were not the critical issues in Jesus' day, nor are they the critical issues in our day. You know, I'm going to say this, and, and, and perhaps I shouldn't. Somebody will say anyway, uh, but so be it. Uh, there's a preacher that's, that's on TV on local Raleigh stations. He's, I guess, lives here or whatever. Uh, and all of the years I have heard him as he heads this one particular organization. He's called the Reverend Doctor. But do you know I've never heard him mention Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection? All the man's talking about is race. Well, that's not an important, but it's not the most important thing. 
Getting the gospel out so that people can trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and realize the debt that was paid for our salvation, the debt that was paid for our sins, and coming to faith in Jesus. That's what the preachers need to be preaching today. Now, somewhere down the road, if you want to talk about these other things, that's okay. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Let's just get the right things first. God help us. No wonder our towns, our cities, our states, and our nation is in the shape that it's in. Preachers are not doing their job in the pulpit. And I think personally, there are some deacons in churches that ought to light a fire on their preacher's backside and say, let's get with the right stuff, okay? Jesus said, this is my blood which was shed for the remission of sins. That's what Jesus said. This is my blood. He shed his blood for the remission of our sins. People need to know that. They won't get to heaven until they do. He died a substitutionary death. My dear friend, he died for me and he died for you. I don't care how good you are. You weren't good enough to get to heaven by yourself. He died for you. He died as your substitute. He died for your sins. And based on His substitutionary death, we through faith in Him can have eternal life. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have peace with God. Do you know people who can't go to sleep at night because they're worried about something they've done? Some sin they've committed? Do you know people? I do. They can't sleep at night. They don't know what it is to have Jesus' death in their behalf. And may I say, I hope they can't sleep until they come to Jesus. Well, there's one other part of this text. And I, I just took three verses here this morning and I'm having a hard time getting through them. But Peter, you know, we talked about him last week. Uh, Peter's a unique individual, really. Um, if you look back at Matthew... Verse uh, 17 of chapter 16. 16, 27. I beg your pardon. 16, 17. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So notice, the one thing I want to call to your attention about that verse is that Peter's called blessed. Jesus called Peter blessed. But now Jesus has some other words for Peter. Now, in verse 21 of Matthew 16, Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to die, that he'd be raised again on the third day. He's going to die. And I don't know. I, you know, uh, sometimes my imagination just runs away. I would love to know for sure what Peter looked like when Jesus said those words. Now we know what he said. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter had to have a little conference with Jesus to teach him. That's what Peter wanted to do. Look at it, verse 22. 
Peter took him aside and said and began to rebuke him, saying, and I don't know, I cannot help, I don't think Peter said, now Jesus, uh, God forbid that this should ever happen to you. I think it came out of him full tilt. God forbid this can't happen to you. His instruction, of course, was anything but good. What was his problem? What was his problem? I can't be for sure, but one of the things I think that was Peter's problem at this point was Peter was looking at this point for a political Messiah who would defeat Rome and institute Israel as the head of the nations. I think that's part of Peter's problem at that particular time. He didn't want to see a Messiah who had to suffer. And you know, the most amazing thing, really, for those of us who read the Bible today and see this verse of Scripture, God forbid it, Lord, that this should never happen to you. If Jesus hadn't died, if Jesus hadn't done these things that He said He must do when He got to Jerusalem, where would Peter be today? What would be our hope? Peter would be in perdition and we would be on the way. If Jesus had acceded to Peter's statements here, there would be no salvation. This was a monstrous sin for Peter. You can't do this, Lord. And he never thought about what would happen if Jesus didn't do it. Never. According to the Scriptures. Now we come to verse 23. And I can't help but wonder how folks who believe Peter was the first pope understand this verse of Scripture. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, get thee behind me. Oops, look at that next word. Satan! And that's not all he says. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a what? A stumbling block? The man who had just been a few verses earlier called blessed, now Jesus calls him Satan and a stumbling block. Why? Because Peter had everything confused. He didn't know at this point in his life, he didn't know why Jesus came. He didn't know what Jesus was supposed to do. And he didn't know how he'd get to heaven if Jesus didn't do what he said he was going to do in Jerusalem. Satan. Word means adversary. Peter, one who loved the Lord Jesus. There's no question about that. Peter loved the Lord. But Satan got a hold of him and twisted him. And turned him into an adversary. But more than that, he calls him a stumbling block. Again, I want to ask the question, what was Peter's problem? Well, the last part of verse 23 spells it out a little more, a little better for us, I think. You're a stumbling block to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Here's a time in the life of Peter when he had his thoughts, his mind, everything set on, look at the Bible. You are not setting your mind on God's interest. You are setting your mind on man's interests.
in the light of the context of this passage of Scripture. And by the way, I don't know of any better passage of Scripture that explains what God's interests are and what man's interests are and how they conflict. Looking at Peter, Peter was not interested in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter was interested in his own interests at this point. May I? My time is gone. Let me let me close with two questions or two thoughts. First of all, what are our primary interests? What are our primary interests? Are we like Peter? We have our interests coinciding, running parallel with man's interests. Or in those things like the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and the great events which flow from that transaction. What are our primary interests? I think we ought to think about that. How much do we pray? We're certainly not overrun Wednesday night's prayer meeting. How many are interested and the peavies getting to Australia. How many of you even know John Wilburn? He's been for some three years trying to get back in Australia. He has a teaching degree. But they know, and he makes it very plain in his paperwork, he's coming in to serve as a missionary, although he will teach. But they won't let him in. Peavies were told if they could get in, it would be two years probably. And they've been waiting for that long anyway, I think. How many of us are concerned about getting the gospel? How many of you have a Jewish friend that you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with? Passover starts next week. Did you know that? What what is our primary interest? What are our primary interests? Why are not we as the people of God concerned more about God's interest than we are our own? You know, folks, I got a lot of questions. And I direct most of them to me first. But I don't have any answers. And I come back to the one that Jesus said here. Peter was more interested in the things of man than he was the things of God. And I believe those words are an enormous rebuke to us. Pray with me. Lord, we stand naked and open before you. Nothing in our hearts, nothing in our lives can be hidden from you. We might hide them from our spouse, from somebody that we love, from our parents. Uh, We can hide almost anything from almost anybody, but we can't hide anything from you. We need your forgiveness, Lord. Because man's interests so often take precedence in my life and in the lives of those who are seated in front of me. And so I pray, 
I acknowledge that to you and pray for your forgiveness. Father, there may be somebody here this morning who's never trusted Jesus as Savior, thinking that they could get to heaven by keeping the law or by God uh, winking at their sins or some other fashion because their grandmother was uh, a godly Bible-reading woman because their grandfather was an itinerant preacher. Whatever. Satisfaction was made at the cross of Calvary whereby our sins can be forgiven. Your holiness, your righteousness have been fully and completely satisfied. And now it is our privilege to trust Jesus Christ as our substitute and as our Savior. Thank you for His marvelous work on Calvary's cross. Help us to see it more clearly. And help us, Lord, to put first things where they ought to be. First. I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. One hundred eighty-eight in your hymnal. That is our hymn of appeal this morning. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. Where the burden of my heart is rolled away. Is your heart heavy this morning? Come to the cross. Trust Jesus. He'll take your burden. He'll forgive you of your sins. You know that our church supports an outreach agency called Water Missions. There are more places than we are aware across this globe where people do not have clean water to drink. The agency that we support helps remedy that and shares the gospel at the same time. I don't know, I have just a, an affinity there. We share, we help them share clean water to drink. But they are also given the water of life. And I think that's terrific. Thank God that we're able to do that. I can't put in the systems, and probably none of us could put in a system that would purify water so hundreds and hundreds of people in small villages and back country where could drink it. But we can help them. And know that while they do that, they're talking about the water of life. Terrific. Mark Massey gives our deacon today. Mark comes to lead us in prayer and pray for water missions. Thank you for being at church this morning. God bless your heart. I trust that you have been encouraged. I've tried to focus our attention on the eternal truth. I hope that you'll rejoice in this day. I received one other good word. And there are others that I have missed. I am sure but I spoke about water missions because it's on my heart. Winston Beck. I just spoke with his dad before service. 
Winston has finished the first six months of his SEAL training. And uh, I, don't know how, I don't know how a man or woman gets through one day of that stuff. Much less six months. And even more after uh, Dad has told me some of the things he had to do. Well, now he's got six more months before he will be full-fledged, certified, qualified, accepted in SEAL ranks. And in these six months, he'll be traveling on across the globe, different countries, practicing the things that he has learned in the first six months. And I'm going to say when he finishes. We are praying for him. Uh, and I'm, so I'm going to say when he finishes this next six months, he'll be the youngest SEAL in the program. Uh, now, one of the things that we need to pray for in these next six months, you know, maybe you've heard of some of the things the SEALs do, or maybe you've seen a little bit of it in a movie or whatever, but there's a, a great tendency to become injured in what he's going to be doing now. And of course, should he be, should he sustain some kind of injury that more than likely would interrupt uh, his hope and goal of finishing and being certified as a CEO. So pray for his safety, all right? Uh, and uh, Dad, will you tell him that uh, we said this at church? Mark, pray for us, would you please? Pray with me, please. Father, first of all, we lift up those um, mentioning our concerns that need comfort, healing, um, have upcoming surgeries, that you'll comfort them and, and guide the physicians um, to care for them. As, Paul, as Ross mentioned, water missions, you know, we've been given so much and we take so much for granted that we just turn a spigot and clean water comes out. We never think twice. Matter of fact, we're shocked if it doesn't. The, um, as he also pointed out, we've been given so much and we take so much for granted and it distorts our focus in our daily lives away from you to our needs and things we want to do. We lift up water missions. We also lift up our revival that water missions tends to the needs of people that don't have clean drinking water, but also tends to a thirst um, for you and gives that word. Challenge you to create an extra thirst in us that you would call us to you and let us seek you daily. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.